Okay, First Timothy chapter 5. This evening we'll consider the first eight verses as we begin this new chapter of this epistle. First Timothy was written, again, to give instruction as to how believers ought to conduct themselves in the household of God, which Paul tells us is the church. In chapter 5, then, Paul turned to the subject of interpersonal relationships, interpersonal relationships to help Timothy, and by extension, all pastors, get along with people effectively and instruct others wisely. Now, while this is information that's specifically directed to Timothy and then by extension to other other pastors, the information that it gives us about interpersonal relationships in the church doesn't just stop with its application to pastors. It extends to everyone in the local church. So uh, don't think you can take a break right now. This, this, This extends by way of application and significance to you as well. What he had written in chapter 4, verses 11 through 13, um, might, have, um, might have been taken wrong by Timothy. Paul did not mean in verses 11 through 13 that, that Timothy needed to adopt a harsh and overbearing leadership style. That's not, that's not what he's saying. Uh, in fact, Paul is quick to point out to Timothy that he should not be abusive in prescribing and teaching the Word of God. God's truth should always, always be presented in love. And Paul makes that clear. In fact, love is powerfully persuasive. Ravi Zacharias said, Truth without the undergirding of love makes the possessor of that truth obnoxious and the truth possessed repugnant. Listen to that again. Truth without the undergirding of love makes the possessor of that truth obnoxious and the truth possessed repugnant. That's why Paul says that we're to speak the truth in love. Churches are made up of individuals for whom Christ died that have different personalities, that are of varying age, that are of diverse opinions as to how things should be done, And even, believe it or not, have views as to where a church should be located that are poles apart. (laughs) Ministering effectively, I thought you'd catch that. Ministering effectively, (laughs) sometimes I don't know if you catch it, but but I think you caught that one. But ministering effectively to such a diverse group can become one of the greatest challenges in the function of church leadership. Perhaps that's why there's so much teaching on humility in in the New Testament. We all have our areas of interest, and individuals in a local church can become so focused on what is important to them at that particular time that that they, without meaning to, can become rather hard to get along with. If their particular concern doesn't make the front burner when they think it should. Special interest groups are a problem in politics, but they are a disaster in churches. If a local church is to survive, pastoral leadership must exercise wisdom in these situations, and the congregation must develop a trust in leadership to do the right thing, even if it's not what any particular individual wants at that particular moment in time. No leader is going to be right 100% of the time. I hope that that would go without saying, but let me say it. 
No leader is going to be right 100% of the time. But without humility on the part of both the leaders and the led, a church is doomed. A local church, not the church, but a local church is doomed to failure. There must be humility on the part of those leading and on the part of those led. Now read with me the first two verses of chapter 5, where Paul tells Timothy, Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. In short, Peter was to relate to everyone in the church as if they were members of his own family. Paul had already taught that the church is a household in chapter 3, verse 15. Uh, Therefore, believers, and especially a leader in the local church, should treat other individuals in that local church accordingly. Now, specifically, how to deal with certain people groups. Uh, Specifically, we should deal with the older men respectively or respectfully and appeal to them gently rather than rebuking them harshly. Now, remember, Peter is considered, I mean, not Peter, Timothy, excuse me. Timothy is considered to be a young man at this time. He's probably about 40, but he's still considered to be, in that culture, a young man. And there are many people in the Ephesian church, or perhaps churches. We talk about it as if it was one church, but it's much more likely that there were many house churches there. But, but there were many people that were attending church in those local, local house churches that were older than him. And now what happens? What happens when this younger man has to exercise some sort of discipline or correction to an older man? Now, I tell you what can happen sometimes. Sometimes the younger man might be intimidated by the older man. And instead of just being able to sit down and have a conversation, like you would with someone that you would consider your peer or your own age, you might have to work up a little adrenaline before you go in and talk to him. And so, so maybe the tendency is actually to overreact and come in with a hammer and rebuke an elder, or this is not talking about the office of elder here, but someone that's, that's your senior in age, to rebuke them harshly because you're not totally comfortable with the situation. And Paul tells Timothy, don't do that. And by extension, he's telling all pastors don't do that. And in fact, it extends outward into the congregation as well. You need to treat the older men in the congregation with respect. They've earned it. And in fact, I've heard it said uh, in in different contexts that that churches should be forever looking to get young. I understand the reason, the reasoning behind that, because sometimes pastors are concerned about their future. You know, if if our church's median age is is 50 or 55 or 45, whatever it may be, then maybe people are concerned with the future. Um. You know, I, I think it's a huge mistake to start marketing, to, to start even praying for certain age groups in a church. I think it would be wonderful just to let the Lord bring the people he wants to bring to a particular church and let you minister to those people. And then if he happens to bring some people who have been around the block a time or two, who have some wisdom, who have been in the Word for a long time, shouldn't we praise God for that? You see, instead of being intimidated, maybe we ought to be thankful. You know, one of the reasons why I don't want to start doing age gradation classes, you know, so we have all the people over 65 in one class, all the people from, you know, 45 to 64 in another class, and then all the people that are young and unmarried but want to be in another class. 
It's because the people that are young and unmarried and want to be, you know some of the people they need to hang around with? You know some of the people that they need to call up and say, hey, listen, can I meet you after church today? I'd love to buy your lunch. They need to be with some of these people that have been married 50 years. And sin I said, how did you do that? You know, what, what, what were some of the things that, that you went through? That's the way it ought to work. We should not be intimidated by the differences in ages in a church. We should embrace that. And we should run toward it. And those who, were, uh, who have been down life's road a little bit should look and, and pick out people, the, the younger ones that they see that are having trouble. Especially younger ones in our church or any church. Younger ones that are, are fatherless. Now, they may be fatherless because their father's passed away, but more likely they're fatherless because of a divorce situation. And there's great wisdom that can be imparted. So we should, should treat an older man as a father, just like you would your father. I hope you treat your father with respect. But, but if there was something that you wanted to sit down and talk to your dad about, and there was maybe a, a behavior that you wanted to correct, I'm sure you'd be a little intimidated by that. But you would sit down in love and you say, hey, listen, Dad, we, we got this thing we've got to work out. Well, in the same way you'd work it out with your dad, you should not rebuke as a pastor or any leader in the church, and you don't rebuke an older man sharply. You rebuke him if necessary. It's not saying don't rebuke him. And I, I've had to do this. And, it, and it's a little bit intimidating. But it doesn't say you don't rebuke them. But you rebuke them in love and you rebuke them with the respect that they deserve. And not just them. How should, how should the, uh, the younger men be treated? Well, the younger men should be treated as brothers. Just like you don't, you don't rebuke an elder man in the church harshly, you don't look down upon somebody that's younger than you in a church. And, and you treat them as you would a brother. You put your arm around them and you treat them with love. The same way with the older women in the church. Treat them as mothers. And, and we're supposed to show respect to our mother and our father, are we not? Well, then, then why would it stop in a church? Paul uses, the Lord uses this family illustration all the time. You treat the older women as you would a mother. And then finally, the younger women as sisters. Now, there's, there's, there's one qualifier that's added to the sisters here that, that, has to, that cannot be glossed over. Sisters, do you see it in the text? In all purity. Sisters in all purity. Unfortunately, it, it was a problem in Paul's day. Apparently, already wouldn't have put that in there. And it, it can even be a problem in churches today that the women in a church are not necessarily treated as a sister in all purity. Not just, we're not talking here just about the, the pastors doing that. This, this should be pervasive through the entire congregation. That, and not just the younger women either. It can apply to the older women as well. But, but all of our ladies should be treated as sisters in Christ. You should be able to give a hug to one of the ladies in the church, and it should be a hug of a brother and a sister. There should be nothing more to it than that. And I mean that. And that's one of the things that don't try me on this. Because I will protect our women in the church. It's a very serious thing. Sisters in all purity. Everybody got that? Everybody listening to the tape? Got that? Sisters in all purity. Now, throughout his epistles, Paul urges those who are his readers to adopt certain attitudes toward God, to think of him as Father, Lord, Savior, and themselves, we're to think of ourselves as saints, ambassadors, 
sons of God, and so forth. These attitudes were crucial for all of us to hold so that we might live properly. The way we think determines how we behave. It starts up here. It starts in the soul. We've got to get it right here first, and then the behavior will follow. Here, in, in the first two verses, Paul teaches a particular view toward others in the local church that's essential. It is essential to success in interpersonal relationships for all of us, but especially in the, in the specific context to pastors. But it does apply to all. Now, Paul moves. In teaching Timothy, Paul moves with, to how to deal interpersonally with two main problem areas in the Ephesian church. And they can be problem areas even now in, in our day and, and probably are. And that is how to handle widows in the church and how, how to handle erring elders. How to handle widows and how to handle erring elders. The widows will be mentioned in verses 3 through 16. Now, we won't get through all of that tonight. The elders will be mentioned in verses 17 through 22. And that will be our subject beginning probably two weeks from tonight. But tonight we begin with written instruction regarding widows. In verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well, so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now, we'll, we'll cut it off there in terms of exposition tonight. We'll continue with the, the issue of how to handle widows in the church in our next class. But this is plenty uh, for this evening. Paul gives this information on widows to tell the church and to clarify for the church how and for whom the church should provide special care. This is so difficult, and I appreciate your prayers for wisdom and, and how to handle benevolence at a local church or how to handle situations like this that come up. Because there's no, um, sometimes there's no rule book. We, we do have some rules and regulations set out here, but it's, these are difficult things, and it takes wisdom to handle. But Paul does draw, drop some boundaries. There are some boundaries in the care of widows in a local church. Widows were at that time especially vulnerable. Now, widows in today's culture are still vulnerable, but it's a slightly different circumstance. A widow in the time that Paul writes this had very little, if any, inheritance generally. The inheritance went to the kids, and the kids were obligated, both morally and spiritually, to take care of mom with dad's inheritance. Let's say you had a man and a woman, and you had four boys, and four daughters. Ordinarily what would happen is when the father died, when the patriarch of the family died, all of the inheritance, ordinarily, now there may have been some exceptions, but ordinarily in that culture, all the inheritance went not to the mother, so that she was in the matriarch, all the inheritance went to the oldest brother. 
so that he now became the patriarch of the family, and it was then his responsibility to act in a patriarchal way and take care of the entire family, first and foremost his mother. Now, can you see what might have happened if the oldest son got the inheritance, became the patriarch of the family, and then said, Mom, I'm not taking care of you. Can you see how bad that would be? Can you see why in verse 8 Paul says, If anyone doesn't provide for his own household, that he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do you see why? At least under that culture. Now, that's not the culture that we live in today. But still, a group, a, a, a group of our culture, a group of our, in our church that is especially vulnerable are those who are widows. Maybe not in the same way, but they are still a vulnerable group. So there's, what, what's going to follow here is a discussion as to how the church figures out which widows should be supported. That's one aspect of the discussion. But it also gives some information, watch, on how widows are to behave. Now, as we go over this information, all I ask is for your objectivity. Those who are widows and those who minister to widows both. I ask for your objectivity. Let the text speak to you. And, and try not to insert the modern cultural ideas into it. Um, and I think we'll be okay. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be real upfront with you about what this passage says and how I believe that it should be applied. Now, the whole discussion of widows, then may focus on the younger, younger widows in particular. Um, this may be the same ladies that Paul is going to speak to in Second Timothy uh, who were responding pos positively to false teachers. It, it may be, but we can't be certain about that. First, a little bit about the word for widows. Kairos. Kairos. C-H-E-R-O-S. That's the, that's the Greek word for widows that Paul uses. And the, the basic thought of this word widow is that of loneliness. That's, that's what the word widow really means, one who's lonely. It comes from an adjective, actually, that means bereaved and speaks of her resultant loneliness as having lost the companionship of her husband. That's who a, a widow is. At least, that's what the word originally meant. Now, so Paul first distinguishes between two kinds of widows in the church. First, there were bereaved who had children or grandchildren that could provide financial and emotional support to the widow. And second, there were those who had no family to take care of them. It, it wasn't as though the, the uh, inheritance went to the son and the son just neglected the mother. It was that there was either no inheritance or there was no son or there was, there was just nobody there. That's why it was so bad. That's why it was such a, a judgment on a family if all the children were killed. Remember, remember Job? I mean, all of his children wiped out at one time. Well, that was more than, there was, there was incredible grief just from the kids dying, but it was a huge blow to the, to the wife as well. You, you wonder why Job's wife was so bitter? There was a lot going on there. I mean, her, her whole economic future was, was in big trouble because there was going to be nobody to take care of her. And that's the way it was in the ancient world. So there's two types here, two basic types of widows. One, a widow that, that has family that could be taken care of by the family, and then another widow, type of widow that did not have a family, and there was not going to be any uh, help for that. The, the Christian relatives of the first group should care for that type of widow. The church should care for the latter group. 
and presumably widows with non-supportive family members. So if there was a situation, the, the way it ought to work is that the family should take care of the widow who is a widow indeed, and we'll talk about what that means in a minute. The family should do it. But if the family refuses, the church is not to, is not to say, listen, family refused, I'm not going to help you. The church should then step in and perform the duty that the family should have performed. Now, I'm going to say it now. I'll probably say it next week too, but, but I've got to stop now and say, woe, to use Old Testament language, woe to anyone, woe to anyone who has the financial resources to support their family. And I'm talking about older family, widows, uh, widowers, family who's just in need. Woe to any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who has the resources and says, no, I'm not going to do it. Woe, 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 I wouldn't want to be you, not now, not ever. Because God is going to come down so hard on you, you'll, you'll wish you never were born. This is one of the lowest things that you can do, is to have the resources and fail to take care of mother or father, or mother-in-law or father-in-law, whoever it may be. Okay. Woe to you if you're just doing it out of pure meanness or out of, or, or out of vindictiveness or any, any issue like that. Woe. Don't. Don't do it. Now, so we see in verse 3, honor widows who are widows indeed. Now, in the, in the following verses, Paul's going to under, unpack what is a widow indeed. But if any, has, any widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family. Now, the, the, the people who are to practice piety in context are the children and the grandchildren. They need to learn to do the right thing. That's what piety is. Piety is living consistently with the Word of God. How can anybody have opened one page of the Word of God and allow a mother or father, a grandmother or grandfather, to suffer when you have the ability to help them? It's one thing if you don't have the ability. But if you've got the ability to help them and you let it go, oh, I'm telling you, this... It's beyond horrible. First, let the children and the grandchildren learn. Maybe it's a learning experience. Maybe, maybe there's a sacrifice that has to be made. Isn't that something? You might, you might have to sacrifice to help somebody else. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's something that may have to be learned. To make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. This is what so many adult children forget that they're making a return to their parents. And they get so far down life's road that they've forgotten that somebody took care of them when they were a little kid. Somebody sacrificed a lot to help them out when they were a child. And, and somehow, as time goes on, people forget that. It just goes right straight out of their mind. The, the sleepless nights that mom and dad spent up with you when you were sick, the vacation that they didn't take, so you could go to the baseball camp. You know, the, the, the things that they didn't do so that you could. And now they're older, and you can, and they can't, and you're going to say, well, that's your tough luck. You should have had better financial planning. Woe to you. I'm telling you, God is not going to put up with that for a minute. Not for a minute. There is a return that is to be made to parents. Now, now if, if there's no financial need, then maybe the return is just honor. Maybe the return is respect. But if there's a financial need and you have to sacrifice, then sacrifice. Do what is right. The, the text calls it behaving with piety. 
behaving it appropriately, appropriately. For this is acceptable. Now look at the next couple words. This is acceptable in the sight of God. And I might add, who is watching the whole thing. Who is watching every move you make. And guess what? He knows exactly how much money you got in your bank account. He knows how much money you got in your bank account, how much you've shifted over into stocks and bonds. And listen, I would love to help you, but I just can't break that uh, jumbo CD right now. You know, He knows exactly what's there. So, so this is between ultimately. You know who this is between? It's not even ultimately between you and your parents. It's between you and God. Now, let's, let's look at who is a widow indeed, because there are restrictions. Now, this is where I don't want to... Step on toes, but if the, if the text steps on toes, then let's let it step on them, okay? And, and hopefully, then the, the wounds will heal, and you'll be better for it. Now, she who is a widow indeed, and, and we're the honor the ones who are the widows indeed. She who is a widow indeed, and who has been left alone, and has fixed her hope on God, and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. The, a widow indeed is first one that's in need, but also one who is living in fellowship with God. That's a widow indeed. Look, look at some of the things. She's fixed her hope on God. She continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. Now, th- this is just representative. This is representative of the entirety of, of what spiritual living would be. But... I, I would assume, and, and, I'm, and I'm not speaking from experience, and, I, and I'm going to have to tell you, I, th- I thank God that I haven't had to go through this. I don't know if some of you have, and I, and I really truly feel for you. I would assume, though, that a woman who, who endures the death of her husband, a man that she's, she's loved and, and honored for many, many years. I'm talking about good marriages. I mean, let's, let's set aside the ones where the wife's actually happy that the husband's gone. You know, I've seen those, too. But, but let's set aside those, and let, let's talk about widows who really, truly love their husband dearly and then have to suffer the loss of that husband's companionship. You know, you're not really suffering. I say it, other people say, too, we suffer the loss of a husband. You're not really suffering the loss. That husband still lives. I hope you realize that. The husband still lives in a place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death. The old things have passed away. There will be a reunion. And there's no, there's no marriage in heaven at least not the same way that there is here, because there's no need for marriage in heaven. Marriage here provides stability for, for society, provides a leadership structure. In heaven, there's no need for that leadership structure. We're all married to Christ there, but there'll still be relationship. You know, For all eternity, uh, I will be Marcia's father. But for all eternity, Marcia is, is uh, uh, Cindy is Marcia's mother. And, and, and so forth with the rest of the kids as well. There's no indication in the scriptures whatsoever that there's no relationship at all in heaven. It just says it's not the same. That leadership structure is not there because it's not needed. It's, it's not going to be as if I am going to have my inheritance on one side of the universe, Cindy will have hers on the other side of the universe, and the kids are going to have to split time like, you know, some sort of divorce court thing. You know, they get me every odd millennium, and they get to visit her every even one. <laughs> No, it's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's a, there's a, fa- a familiar relationship there. Uh, Isaac is always going to be Abraham's child, but Isaac will always be Sarah's child as well. So there is a, there is a loss in the sense of companionship. 
But there's not a loss of the, of the person. That person is still there. And there will be an incredible reunion in heaven. It won't be the same. We talked about that, remember? It, it won't be the same. But whatever it will be, it will be better. Now, just, just let your imagination run with that one. Whatever it will be, it will be better. It will be phenomenal. But there's certain behavior, though, that's expected of a widow if the widow is to be supported by the church. And, and we just have examples here. Continues in treaties and prayers and fixes her hope on God. I would think, I was about to say, one of the things that would be so painful, aside from the, the loss of the companionship of the husband, aside from the loss of a child, the, the death of a child, I, I would think that this would be one of the most difficult things that a, that a, a woman, a, a, a lady who's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, would ever have to endure. That would ever have to endure. And just like with the loss of a child, and again, I know some of you have done this, and, and uh, I, I truly do feel for you, just like with the, with the death of a child, also with the death of a spouse, one of the things that I have, have just observed, and I, all I have done is observe it, is that it does tend to focus one's attention, for those who are walking in fellowship, it focuses attention on God like a laser beam. At least that's the way it should work. Now, Paul's going to give an alternative. There's two ways you could go when you suffer that kind of bereavement. You can either focus your hope on God like a laser and cling to that, or you can go completely the other direction. Now, that's the second part. But, and this is a pretty strong contrast, but she who gives herself to want and pleasure is dead while she lives. Now, these types do not qualify for regular support on the part of the church. Now, this is not meanness on the part of those in the local church. This is, this is strictness on God's part in order to motivate widows not to engage in wanton pleasure. To have pleasure is a legitimate and healthy thing. But to live for pleasure is an unworthy and unhealthy ideal. Paul is not denying a widow's right to be happy. Far from it. That's not, not at all. But what he's saying here is, is there, there is a way that uh, there is a behavior that's expected by God, not by the church, by God of the widows. I, I respect the pain that is involved. I, I respect it more than you'll know. I respect the pain that's involved when a, particularly a woman suffers the loss or the, the death of a husband. Now this happens both the other way too and, and, and frankly when oftentimes when a wife dies before the husband men have a more difficult time handling it than, than women do. It's, we're, we're weaker emotionally even though we'd like to pretend we're not. But this passage is, is speaking about widows and, and it's a very painful thing. It's enormously painful but the pain of this loss must not be drowned in carnal living. I have personally witnessed this happen. And frankly, it makes me ill. It makes me nauseated when I see um, 
when I see this occur. And, and can I say this to you bluntly, but let me say it in love, with all the love of Christ. The answer to great pain is not fornication. The way to honor both your Lord and your husband who is now with the Lord is not to begin sleeping around. Now, here I'd like to, I told you this was going to step on toes. Let me just go ahead and do it. I want to say something to those who are children of widows, adult children, younger children, whoever they may be. When this event happens, allow mom to grieve. Now, what the problem is, it's, it's very painful to watch someone else go through a grieving process. That hurts you as a child. And I know it's painful for the children as well. And I know that you don't want to see your mom in pain, and I know you don't want to see her lonely. But please, do her a favor and hold off on setting her up on a date. You know, it happens. The kids, are, the kids can't bear to see mom all by herself. And so we, we, it, let's, let's, it would be healthy for her to do this. Not necessarily. Give her time to grieve. There's, there's, been a, there's been a bond. The, the two, have become, two have been one flesh, and they've been one flesh for a long time, and now there's a separation of that flesh. There, there will be a reunion at some point, and there's terrible grief. And, and, and t- this has happened, I, I just speak from personal experience and observation, that the kids are so overwhelmed with that, that they so want mom not to grieve, that, that they'll almost do anything. In fact, you know, I'm so happy mom's dating this old boy now. You know, she seems so much happier not necessarily. Sometimes there is. Now, this is not. This passage will not argue against widows remarrying. There, there are going to be some specifics here. It's not going to argue against that. It's going to be. It, this text will argue since we're coming to close in the time, and I'd say I can get everybody's attention now. The, the text is going to argue against remarrying for reasons of wanton pleasure, just to fulfill a, a physical need. The text is going to argue against that. And I, I say that in a, in a sterile way. God argues against that. God, that's, that's not the right reason. There are legitimate reasons for younger widows to remarry. And Paul's going to cover that. Uh, there are also legitimate reasons why those widows over a particular age, and I'll give you that age next week. It'll be a motivation for you to come back. <laughs> but there, there's particular reasons for those to stay. It's, it's 60. Sorry. For those to, to stay single, there, there, is, there is nothing illegal, I'm talking about in, from a biblical sense, about a, a widow remarrying. But the point of this passage and the, the point of the flow of New Testament teaching on this is that there needs to be time for the wound to heal. There's got to be time for that wound to heal. And don't follow a, if you'll forgive me, don't follow a sexual impulse into carnal living and, and expect that you're a widow indeed. You're a widow, but you're a widow that's living in carnality. And Paul is, is very specific that these things ought not to be done. So Paul says that she's dead even while she lives. Now, that's pretty strong language. Now, this, this type of death that's mentioned here is not, is not the fact that she's lost her salvation. That's, that would go against all New Testament and Old Testament teaching. It is that she's living in carnality. She's living outside of the fellowship of God, 
And when she's doing that, she's also outside the fellowship of the local church as well. So the local church should not uh, support that kind of behavior. It's not legalistic. It is actually something that's done in love. Prescribe and prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. This is the same word we had back when we were talking about qualifications for elders and pastors and, and the office called bishops, same office, and also for deacons. So, so that she may be above reproach. And then finally, if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I believe I've made my views on that and the scripture's views clear already, so I won't, I won't uh, belabor that. But let me just let me just say, in as we close this part, we'll come back to it next week, as we continue Paul's teaching on on the the aspect of the church's relationship, the interpersonal relationship with widows, and that is that is this: the death of a beloved husband can be a time of accelerated spiritual growth, or a time of a spiritual freefall. We should do all that we can as a local church to help a grieving widow focus upon the Lord and not to give in to sexual sublimation. Okay. Thank you for your objectivity. Now let's pray. Father, we are appreciative that you have a prescription for every aspect of our lives and and even for this very tender one and very sensitive one. Father, I do pray for those in our congregation in our midst that are widows and widows indeed for for whatever reason they've been left alone, whether it's a death or an abandonment. I do pray that that this situation would would encourage each individual involved to, to turn their attention upon Thee, to turn their eyes upon their Savior and to keep them there and to draw their happiness and to, to draw the companionship that is vital for us all from their relationship with you. And I pray that for all of us, uh, no matter what situation we find ourselves in. May we recognize you as preeminent in our lives and not merely prominent. Father, help us to be sensitive as a church to see needs when they occur and to do whatever we can to meet those needs. But, Father, I do pray first for those in the families that are involved that, that we won't risk the terrible, terrible discipline that would come from, uh, from purposeful neglect of, uh, of widows or uh, of uh, elderly parents. Father, the, the Holy Spirit is vital in this ministry, so I pray that the Holy Spirit would motivate each of us to behave in the way that you would prescribe. We'll ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.